Imagine you've been working hard all day. You've been on your feet all day. There have been people making demands of you all day. People who have been needing things from you and you have not had even a moment's reprieve to be able to eat lunch or to eat dinner. There's been whining. There's been complaining. There's been chaos. There have been problems. And it is finally, let's say, 9 o'clock. And you are coming home from work. And you've been gone since 7 o'clock in the morning. And you are fantasizing about how good it's going to feel to turn that TV on and to attack the pantry like a hungry middle linebacker looking for a tailback. Except you're not looking for a tailback. You're looking, you're looking for chips. You're hoping there's some leftover steak that your wife prepared for dinner. You're hoping that there are lots of satisfying dairy products available in the refrigerator, ice cream, and voluminous amounts of cheese. You're hoping that somebody left an untouched pie somewhere that you could destroy. You're ready. But you come home, and this is a true story, and your wife has been watching. It's not my true story. It's another person's true story. But I can relate to it. Your wife has been watching something on Netflix, a documentary called Forks Over Knives. Well, it's late, and you're tired, and you're ready to eat, to be renewed by eating in all the worst ways imaginable. And your wife declares then and there, on the spot, in your moment of great vulnerability and expectation, I've just watched Forks Over Knives, and I hereby declare that February is vegetarian month in our home. And you look at your wife that you normally love, and you say, Woman, you've got to be kidding me! Dear God, woman, can we start next Monday? Can it be next month? Can it be tomorrow? Please let it not be right now. Not right now. There's something, isn't there, about us? When we're in a moment like that and you think, there ain't nothing that grows on God's green earth that's going to satisfy this need for salt and sugar and chocolate that I have right now. I need beef, woman. Not broccoli. Broccoli doesn't satisfy a man when he's in this condition. No asparagus is going to fix me. I, thank you. I need ice cream. I need ice cream because I hunger. Can you relate? This happened to someone in our congregation. That's really not me, I promise. <laughs> but you know what happens sometimes when you want something so badly, something you think you need, Something you know you must have. When it gets blocked from you, you become a mess. You become agitated and angry. Very difficult to deal with. The Israelites are in a similar kind of condition right now as they have been for the last three chapters. 
after experiencing a rather stunning visitation from God where he puts on a muscle shirt, shows off his brawn, rips out the chains that held them, liberates them from Egypt, hurls the Egyptians into the sea like a little boy throwing pebbles into a lake. It's nothing for God. They're singing, they're rejoicing, they're thinking, we've got it made. And then shortly after all of this, they find themselves without water. In Exodus 15, the water, well, they have water, but it's bitter. It's water that'll make them sick. They haven't been to Rock Creek. They haven't gotten, not Rock Creek here, Rock Creek Outfitters. And they haven't gotten those little tablets to clean up the water. And so God supplies from them, throws through Moses a stick into the water, and it makes it not bitter, but drinkable. And then they find themselves wandering about in the desert, and they're starting to accuse Moses of nefarious intentions, and God himself as well. He's brought us out here to kill us. He's brought us out here to cause a mass grave. They're starving. And they are not in the mood for any lessons about anything. They just want to eat. And God meets their grumbling, melts their grumbling with this gracious provision from heaven. Frosted flakes in the morning, golden corral, quail buffet at night. He meets their murmuring with considerable mercy, not like anyone would have expected. And then the next chapter, once again, we meet Israelites who have like that man, coming home ready, thirsty, hungry, vulnerable, needy, wanting, craving. They're out in the desert, they're wandering about, and they get thirsty, and there's no water. And so they become violent. Violent. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink, and so they quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why are you quarreling with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people, but the people, they were thirsty for water there. They weren't interested in any explanation. They wanted to slake their thirst there. And so they grumbled against Moses. And again, they accuse him of having wicked intentions. Oh, I see, Moses. I see what kind of guy you are. You've brought us out here. It's not enough that you want to kill us. You want to kill our babies and our little goats. You want to kill our cattle. You want to cause us to die of thirst. And Moses... Realizing this isn't just a grumbling kind of thing. This isn't a kid crying because they had a popsicle and they were enjoying that sucker and it dropped. And the kid's crying like part of his arm fell off. But it'll be okay. That's not what's happening here. This is more like a, this is more like a Black Friday sale at Walmart where people get violent for a flat screen TV that's only $3.99 where they're going to trample each other. They are ready to kill Moses. This is what he says to God. What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. This isn't just like cute 
people being snarky, they're ready to be done with him altogether. It's a violent kind of situation. And he accuses them of accusing God. He says, you're putting God to the test. Why are you testing God? And let me bring something up to you as a first point. One of the things that the Israelites failed to gather, and it's taking them a while, and they'll get it more closely eventually, but it's the same kind of thing we fail to gather too, is that this feeling of deprivation and going nowhere is part of God leading you somewhere. This feeling of deprivation and feeling like you're going nowhere is part of God's leading you somewhere. See, do you realize that the Lord has led them? They are traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. You remember they've got this GPS system in the desert. Fire by night to light the path where they should go. A cloud, pillar of cloud by day to show them where they're supposed to go. And he's leading them around, and it seems like he might be leading them around to nowhere. They're in the desert. They're stuck. There's no water. There's no provision. They get anxious. Now, if you pause for a second and think about looking around your own life right now, where it seems to be headed where you don't want it to be headed, or you just don't know where it's heading, you get anxious. You're being deprived, perhaps, of things that you think you need very badly. A spouse, a better job, a better spouse, a child, better kids. You are feeling somehow or another like maybe God is nowhere. And you know what happens when you do this? When you think and you fail to realize that God himself is leading, that they are where they are because the Lord, who has already rescued them from slavery, has created them as a people and he's forming them. He's leading them. But they've forgotten this. Just like we forget we're being led. Just like we forget we'll never be forsaken. You know what you do? You come up with tests. You put God under examination. You cross witness. You cross analyze him. You put him on the witness stand and make God answerable to you. Do you ever do this? Do you have tests in your life where you say to God, if you really love me, you will come through for me. Nothing will happen to the people I love if you really love me. Things will go well for me in my job if you really love me. I won't feel this ache inside, oh God, if you really love me. And you create a test. That's exactly what the Israelites were doing here. In fact, the place after the episode is over is called the place of Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The Israelites presumed to be God's judges and they set up their own exam to say, is God really here or is he not? And we'll decide whether he's here or not by him answering to our conditions, by him coming through in the ways that we envision. Well, another way it strikes me that we can do this is that you just conclude that he's not there and you stop hoping anything from him. You kind of go through the motions, but you've stopped expecting that God will be on the scene in any of the thirsty places of your life, in any of the barren 
deserted places where you don't know where you're headed, where you don't know what's going to happen, where you're anxious, where you're lonely, where you're just bored. You stop hoping. That's another way of testing him. You're saying he's failed the test and I'm not going to hope in him anymore. But you got to remember, as the Israelites were being led into the desert, God had an intention. And the analogy for our lives is that this was instructive for us. We get to hear their story because it is our story. We also live in a time where we've been promised amazing things and they haven't come true yet. And it sometimes feels like you're meandering about. And you have to remember that the Lord is circumnavigating this. He is leading this thing so that you realize we don't have any way to test Him. It's we ourselves who are being tested. Can we trust Him? Can we hope from Him? Will we look to Him? So He cries out to the Lord, Moses does, What am I to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. And the Lord answers Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which I struck the Nile. Made it undrinkable when he hit the Nile. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. Water will come out of it for the people to drink. God has this intention that they don't know anything about. He's planning to water them. He's planning to meet up with their very real thirst with very wet water. They just haven't experienced that He can do this kind of thing. They haven't brought into their minds this possibility that He might be up to something else. Which brings me to the second point. Not only is going nowhere part of God's somewhere for us, it's very helpful to consider when you're thinking about the desert times in your life, to consider that deprivation is part of God's detox for us. Let me explain that. One of our elders here is an Old Testament professor, and he says, it's so great to think about Israel. I'm making every baby cry today. This is a bad sign. I'm really sorry, Jameson, Robin, babies. Sheesh, can get a man's confidence at all undermined. But these Israelites had been, for 430 years, they'd been slaves. As slaves, you know what you learn to do? Well, nothing. You don't learn how to be people. You don't learn how to hope for things. You don't learn how to exercise initiative. You don't learn that you can change anything. You don't know who to trust. You learn to love your captives, your captors, sorry, captors. You learn to count on them for security. You You learn to trade off everything for the security of knowing you've got bread coming. You've got food coming. But you see, what God's trying to do in the desert is He's trying to help these Israelites become his royal nation. He's helping them to become his project where everybody in the world can see what it's like when a nation becomes an embodiment of God's righteousness. And so he's training them. And so one of the things he has to do is he has to take them out into the desert and he has to detox Egypt out of them. Have you ever detoxed? Some of you actually literally have with drugs or alcohol. And some of you have given up 
something that you were addicted to like caffeine. What happens when you start going without caffeine if you've lived on it? You get cranky, you get headaches. Have you given up sugar before? No, why would you give up sugar? You give up certain kinds of things and in this state of deprivation you think at first that you're going to die. But one of the things we learn as we take a 20,000 foot view and we look at Moses talking to the second generation of Israelites who wandered around in the wilderness, he tells them that one of the things that God was doing in causing them to hunger and making them wander around, he was humbling them, which means he was weaning them off of themselves. He was weaning them off of trusting Egypt. He was weaning them off of trusting Pharaoh. He was weaning them off of trusting that they knew what was best for their lives. I caused you to hunger that I might feed you, he says, so that in the end it might go well for you. See, one of the things about deprivation is that when God puts you in conditions where you are not getting the thing that you think you need most, it's God's weaning process for you. God is trying with us, as he was with the Israelites, to take slaves, to take orphans, and to make them trusting obedient, flourishing children who can walk, who can handle things, who can represent him in the world. And do you know this? What do you call children? What do you call children who get every request answered yes? Who get every single thing that they want? Come on, someone say it out loud. Spoiled! Everyone knew the answer! Now, no one thinks they're spoiled, and no one thinks they're spoiling their kids, except in rare moments when you get really frustrated and you, you kids are just spoiled. But you know, children who meet no resistance in their lives, they're unprepared to live life. They're unprepared for not getting their needs met. They're unprepared for struggle. They're unprepared for hard things. And so parents who really love their kids, they say no to their kids. They make their kids go without certain kinds of things. They run the risk with their children of being badly misunderstood. And they don't bother to fix it. Because they know that the way we get weaned off ourselves is by deprivation. Have you ever, with your children... Not let them do something they thought they needed to do. Not let them have something they knew they must have. And they accused you of meanness. They used some kind of technical term. You're just a meanie pants. <laughs> yeah. Why are you such a meanie pants? Why are you being so mean? And you, of course, answer with something like, Because I love the demise of small children. Ha, ha, ha. There's nothing that brings me greater joy than seeing small, innocent children weeping. <laughs> it happens to teenagers, too. I can remember, I unfortunately remembered even this morning, probably the only time I ever cussed in my house where my parents heard me <laughs> was when I was denied something and I threw a baseball in my room at a thing. And out came an expletive that I wanted everybody to hear. Because I had to register 
my complaint against the severe unmercy of my parents because I was an idiot. (laughs) But when you are deprived, when you think you know what you need, then it is very easy to misunderstand what is happening. And one of the things that happens in the desert and all the desert places of your life, all the wandering time where you're stuck between God's made these promises, but they don't seem to be coming true. I need this security, but I feel insecure. I need this loneliness to be met, but I feel awfully alienated. I feel this great vacuousness in my soul that I need to be filled and I got to get something for it. All of these kinds of situations that you are in, it's very easy to start to assume that because you're in them, God's not doing something. Or worse, because you're in them, that God doesn't care. But if you start to remember, God uses this as detox. The the most gracious thing God can do for us is to teach us not to depend on ourselves. The most gracious thing he can do for us is to wean us off of an excessive demand that we get everything we want so that we can walk around in the world and we can actually love other people and not be pirates of them. Not walk through the world needy, stealing from other people. Please love me. Please give to me. Please affirm me. God wants us to know those things from him. And he deprives us. He deprives the Israelites so that he can make them his royal nation, converting them from slaves to actual royal image bearers. And he's doing the same thing to us. They get the water. God meets their thirst. He meets their thirst. Standing on this rock. And it becomes a place for them to remember that they tested the Lord there and said, is he with us or not? And God didn't say, shut your pie holes. He gave them water. He gave them water and he gave them a place to remember. A place to think of. A place to call to mind in the middle of their future deprivations. God does things. God answers. God's with us. God's up to stuff. And so here's a question Our third point for you, not just that going nowhere is part of God somewhere and that desert time, deprivation time is detox time, but there is a call for us in the middle of our deprivations to purposefully put ourselves in desert time. Do you know what that means? Here's one of the things that happens to us. I used to say this to my mother when I was young. I get confused when I was using verb tenses. I would say ing when I meant to say ed. And so I would say to my mom sometimes, Mom, I'm boring. (laughs) And of course I didn't mean to indict myself. I was trying to say, Mom, I'm bored. I'm bored. There's nothing to do. But instead, I would say, Mom, I'm boring. And she would say, I know you are, honey, but you can't help it. (laughs) You see how I turned out like this. 
But you know what happens to us? Because you have some deep inner thirsts. It's not just actual water that you want. You have these angsty, cavernous depths in your insides that need to be filled. And when they're not filled, you know what happens to you, don't you? You feel empty inside. You feel depleted inside. And if you don't ever sit and let yourself feel the weight of that thirst, of that hunger, of that deprivation, you may be missing out on something that God means for that to inspire in you. God may be, as we've said, using this detox to lead you to water coming from a rock. But you and I are tempted right now to never sit with our discomfort. You can go shopping. You can get online. You can watch a movie. You can listen to music. You can stay frenetically involved in all kinds of activities. And you never have to feel the weight of your boredom, of your emptiness. Walker Percy once said that boredom is the self stuffed with the self. You've got no inner resources when you're bored. When life presents nothing except emptiness to you, that means there's something that's hollowed out inside. There needs to be something built up in there. And so what a lot of us do is we turn that around and you start to gamble. You start to get involved in sexual immorality. You, you look for something exciting to do. I read one social commentator who said, do you know what causes mass movements more than any kind of oppression? Boredom. It's interesting to note the great anger of the far right wing and the far left wing. What if underneath it all, it's not oppressiveness that they're fearing or the lack of rights. It's just people who are empty as heck inside. They're bored. They're looking for something to spice up their life. They're saying, I've got to have something to drink. And they won't sit there and let themselves feel the weight of it. But Jesus tells us in, the cha- in John chapter 7 on this, right before he was to be killed, on the last and greatest day of the feast, he stands up and he says, using this kind of language, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. The great danger, the great danger of your thirsts, like that man coming home and saying, I know what I need to fill me, and it's in the pantry. I know what I need to fill me, and it's in the refrigerator, it's in the freezer, and it's in a carton. I know what I need to fill me. If you realize you're getting detoxed, if you realize that the pains of your life and the Things that aren't happening the way you want them to in your life are all designed to wean you off of yourself, to wean you off of your own expectations of what you think needs to happen and to say maybe there is a way to get water that would nourish me that I haven't thought about. And Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. The Apostle Paul, taking up this whole theme of thirst and water, 
talks about Jesus being this rock. That Jesus was somehow there in the desert. And when the staff of Moses, this rod of judgment, was instead of used as some kind of kamikaze ninja stick to wear out the Egyptians for their murmuring and their complaining, it gets struck on the rock and resources come out for the people. The apostle says that that rock that spiritually fed, spiritually watered, spiritually nourished, gave people what they most needed was Christ himself who got struck on that cross to provide refreshment for us. And so over and over and over again in the scriptures, we're given this invitation, come to the waters and drink with no money. If you're thirsty, come to me, Jesus says. If you've got an inner ache, don't count on other people to fix that. Come to me. I will give you drink. I'm going to close with this story. You've heard it before, probably. In the Narnian tales. And it's so good. It speaks so much to what fear we have about this. This young girl has made her way to this Narnian land in the silver chair. And she's been crying and crying. She's alone. She's scared and she's afraid. And she's got no food. She's in a state of deprivation. She's in a wilderness. But she hears a creek. She hears a river. And it makes her thirst even more strong than it was. Although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before. She didn't rush forward and drink. She stood still as if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open. And there was a very good reason for this. As she is thirsty as all get out. And her mouth is wide open. Over to the side, she notices that there is a lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lions at Trafalgar Square. And she knew at once that the lion had seen her. For its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. And so she starts to ponder this little girl who's dying of thirst and has a water supply in front of her, but the only problem is there's a lion. She starts to have an inner dialogue like you might have. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment. And if I go on, I'm going to run straight into his mouth. This is a quandary, as they call it. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure. It felt like for hours that she stood there. And the thirst became so bad, she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could get a mouthful of water first. And at that point, the lion speaks to her. If you're thirsty... You may drink. They were the first words she had heard in a while. And she wondered where they came from. And then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. 
And she remembered, oh, I'm in this world where animals can talk. And she realized it's the lion. But the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper and wilder and stronger, a sort of golden, heavy voice. It didn't make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. And he says to her, Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, she says. I'm dying of thirst. Well, then drink, says the lion. And she negotiates. May I? uh, Could I? Would you mind going over there while I get the water? And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked a whole mountain to move itself for her convenience. But the delicious rippling noise of the stream in the background was making her frantic. She's torn. She wants something so badly and something so terrifying stands in her way. Will you promise? She negotiates more. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, he says. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys and men and women and kings and emperors and cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. Then I dare not come and drink, said Joe. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Joe. Oh, dear, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion said in those famous words that you've all seen and heard before, there is no other stream. And it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream and she knelt down and she began to scoop up the water with her hand. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need much of it. For it quenched your thirst at once. And before she had tasted it, she had been intending to dash away after she had it. Now she realized that would be the most dangerous thing of all. Here's the thing about Jesus. Supplies resources. He says, if you're thirsty, anyone who thirsts, you come to me, you'll thirst no more. The thing you need most if you travel in the desert is you need water. The thing you need most if you live on this planet is him who gives living water for your soul. And it's scary. What's he going to do with us? Do you promise you're not going to hurt us if we follow you? No. His only promise is that he will not give up on you. Is that he knows what your life is for and what your life can be. And he is the one who has said, I will thirst that you will never thirst again. I will be abandoned by God so that you will never be abandoned by God so you can trust His intentions. 
And just as the Israelites remembered that place as the place where they tested the Lord to say, is he with us or is he not? You can look at Jesus offering himself on the cross to say, he's with us. In our deprivation, he meets us. In your boredom, in your emptiness, in your ache, in your sin, in your longing to be healed and repaired, he has the water. Will you come to him? Will you make space to run to him? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Be weaned off yourself this day. And make a habit of coming to him to drink. Amen.